Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. So let's say you've just heard that your local pub's about to be closed down. What action will you take? We're going to be hearing what a group of Nunhead residents decided to do about it. And which of London's bridges was built entirely by women? It's Friday, April the 5th, 2013. I'm N. Quentin Wolfe, and this is Londonist Out Loud. London, Michaelmas term lately over. London. Okay, you know where you are. A radical transformation. Very radical transformation. Are morally outraged with what's going on. I got very excited this week. Seems reasonable, doesn't it? As soon as you scratch the surface, you realise gore happened all across London. Every open square would have a place called the Kittle Hoosie. Saw your Geordie's Grace riding on a goosey. What the hell is that? <laughs> a man is tired of London. He's tired of so London. So what was the first thing that caught your eye? The South has an overstuffed walrus. It's, it's a very important history. A handwritten letter from Charles Dickens. There's a piece of information we're missing here somewhere. You sneak through the city, what, amassing yourself in the sight sounds. And for the Jewish community the who came over in their tens of thousands from uh, Russia, from Poland. We are doing a modern take on Morris dancing. When did he think the second coming was going to happen? Yes, uh, Boris... He wants to put an airport. <laughs> the, t- the tone with which Boris has announced it is fatigue. Yes, the city is always changing. Uh, people frequently say to me, you know, won't it be wonderful when it's finished? And I say, no, it'll be dreadful. Uh, it'll mean it's dead. Inform and entertain. That's what it's about. London is a modern Babylon. That's very true. Can we have some of the detail here? Well, hello, hello. We are ensconced in the studio space at uh, St. James's Studio, and that is in Palace Street in the area of Victoria that's currently seems to be undergoing massive redevelopment. There's all sorts going on up above ground, but we're below ground in a small space. It's for comedy, cabaret, and small-scale theatre, and it uh, complements the, the shows in the main house. We're surrounded, actually, by sort of 1950s-style pictures, I would say. I've seen Cary Grant framed on the way down here with me. I have a couple of people who know London extremely well. Fiona Jane Weston is an actress, singer and cabaret artiste. She is a performer of one-woman shows and London, the capital cabaret, is going on. Is that going on at the moment, Fiona Jane? Well, it was just performed last week um, and it was actually at a a different cabaret venue. And this is sort of the history of London in some respect? Yes, it's um, my own particularly bonkers and bizarre take on London history from the Romans to the present day in under an hour and a half, so no pressure there. Uh, And it also uh, looks at my particular interests and reasons for my living in the capital. We will be coming back to that in more detail shortly. Kathy Brown, your business card says that you are a ringleader of London Street Games and uh, also writer of the London Treasure Trails. Uh, could you could you put some flesh on that bone for us? Yes, yeah, certainly. So I have the pleasure of spending my time wandering around London and making up games for other people to play so that they can explore the city and get to know it. Uh, that bit better as well but in a fun way so we do we do uh, treasure hunt based games and puzzles for members of the public to play at weekends or for businesses so they can use them for team building so what's the genesis of this there must have been a point when this all began and the first game happened how how did that work i would say that this arose out of my own personal love of treasure hunts and um in particular, there's one that's taken place for many, many years in London called the Miglia Quadrato. It's been run for 50 years by the United Hospitals and Universities of London Motor Club, and it takes place all night long in cars in the month of May. Now, I got hooked on this a few years ago, and then uh, grew into a company which writes treasure hunt trails for, for, for the public. Um, the whole thing just grew out of there. I just realised how many people love treasure hunting as a, f- a form of leisure. Sometimes you just get a sentence and you realise a whole show could be based on that sentence. We, we can't do it that much justice, but uh, now M- Miglium uh, Quadrato, that's the square mile. Yes. And But what about this club that's involved in it? They're, they're driving around the square mile? 
that's it. Yeah, they, uh, they did it in response to. I think it was in response to petrol shortages uh, at around the, after the Second World War, and uh, they decided that instead of going around the country on their on their big competition rallies, that they would res- restrict it to the square mile of the city. And it's done with the uh, approval and the knowledge of the City of London Police. Uh, has been going almost every year in that time. You could find out about it on uh, Wikipedia, I think, but. Um, still going strong hundreds of teams uh, take part every year um, and and just race around the city all night long with torches looking for the answers to clues so it's, it's overnight as well it is indeed yeah starts at midnight and finishes at five o'clock in the morning when you have to find somewhere somewhere on a sunday morning for breakfast with your teammates which is actually quite a challenge in itself <laughs> uh, it seems quite obvious how one would go about soaking up information about london and uh, perhaps acquiring a love of the history of the city doing that uh, i presume question setting would involve uh, an in-depth knowledge there as well but fiona jane what about y- yourself i know you're very into well particularly the, perhaps the victorian era but, but the history of london more generally what is it that turns you on about the the history of the capital um, I think the fact that I lived in so many different countries all over the world um, as I grew up, um, and I lived in the strangest, quirkiest places as well. I mean, the People's Republic of China, before anybody else really uh, from the West was living there so much, um, and I lived in a little remote village in North Papua New Guinea, and was also had a lot of my upbringing in Australia. So I find myself looking at my own country and my own capital city, particularly with the eyes of a foreigner. I value things which a lot of people might not. Um, uh, the old old buildings and old strange ways of London and I just noticed little funny things like um, uh, the the, the Victorian boot rails and things like that which people would wipe their boots on before they would enter a house that might just be still open in the um, outside on some iron railings and I found that these things were very interesting to me and I I thought we're losing a lot of this and that seemed to me a great shame so that was really what started me going on it and it was also with last year with the Olympics and the Jubilee and so on, that was obviously the year to formulate a show on it and bring something of that to it. I'm absolutely fascinated by the prospect of you coming, I'm sure you didn't come directly from Papua New Guinea to London, that would have blown your mind, surely. How did did that journey work out? How did you you sort of acclimatise and depressurise and get used to city life? Um, Well, I wasn't long in in Papua New Guinea in the jungle clearing, so I was kind of used to city life before then. But um, I I went back to Australia after there and then realised that really I was looking for something. I don't know. I think perhaps I was searching for my own roots. I think that had partly to do with it. And also by then I had very much decided that I was going to go and and take theatre as a a serious profession. And if you're going to do that, then really you have to come back to London, don't you? You can't can't be anywhere else. Where else would you want to go? Um, Kathy's nodding wildly here. Definitely... I'm I'm agreeing on the basis that well in my case my daughter has uh, theatrical uh, leanings and there's no other place that she wants to be than than in London. So it's, it's absolutely well, there's very few hubs of this sort of quality, aren't there? Oh nowhere, nowhere. I mean perhaps New York to some extent, but it's a different it's a it's a very different culture and a very different way of looking at it as well. Um, but no, really, you've got to be in London if you're interested in theatre and. Re- and I remember having conversations like this when I was living in Melbourne, where people said, oh, but we've got museums, we've got theatres, we've got, you know, why, why would you want to go? And I thought, well, yes, you have museums, but at that time there was probably only about three and you could go around them in a day. Can you imagine that in London? I mean, the V&A, it'd take you a week to just go through one floor. I think it would take you a day to, to make a list of all the museums. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Well, just on that subject, by the way, um, we, <laughs> I don't know how, how good our facts are here, but we're hearing something peculiar about the Jeffrey Museum and, and, and pubs. Um, we're going to dig into this. There's, there's some sort of peculiar story brewing there, I think. Um, but what, which museums would you single out in, uh, in London? Oh, well, the number one museum for me has to be the Museum of London. And you said about spending all day. I spent all day on one floor. I need to go back and do the rest. Um, I, you know, it's just wonderful. You can get lost in there and there's so much of the history to learn. Uh, the other two that I absolutely would recommend to anybody to go to are the, the John Soane Museum in Lincoln's Inn Fields. Wonderful original paintings. You can see the original Hogarths um, in their a rake's progress and, and so forth. 
and uh, the Foundling Museum. Again, you've got Hogarth in there, but a little, probably a little known fact is that there is the original, original score of Handel's, uh, I think it's the, the Messiah on the top floor, you can go and see it, and it was bequested to the, the museum. There's so much history in there, and I think it's relatively little known really interesting story about the history of foundlings in in london as well and and how that ties in with children in that whole neighborhood of bloomsbury well thinking of the john so museum actually near where i am um i live in crystal palace but um just down the road is dulwich and we've got the dulwich picture gallery which was set up by john Soane. And I think he actually you know, he was involved in the architecture and the building of it. And now that is also a very interesting place for people to visit for, for paintings that you wouldn't think would be there. Um, and it was what... What's, there's a couple of little interesting facts about that. One is that that was where the, the you know the gallery you know, when you see walls painted red, the art gallery red walls that you sometimes see in galleries. They were the ones who who, who invented it, realised that that was what paintings look best on rather than white walls. Um, just out of curiosity, by the way, when you're going around a museum, Kathy, or you're you're listening to details like that, is there a part of your brain that's storing these away for uh, sort of quiz questions or so? How does your brain work on this stuff? <laughs> Definitely, definitely. Uh, I, I am a bit of a sponge for all of these bits and pieces and everything to me is fascinating and could be used as a piece of trivia, um, as you say, a quiz question, just to, just things that, that, that surprise and, and interest people in, in unusual ways. So the thing you've just mentioned about the phone box, actually, that yes, yeah, so um, Giles uh, Gilbert Scott wasn't it who did who designed the red phone boxes and did base it on the so on Soane's um architecture so definitely and then of course Gilbert Scott was a person who designed and built the uh the original power station which is now the Tate Modern so you've got this kind of circle of uh design architecture and art all all going on um was he was he connected with Battersea as well that I don't know, but they are very similar structures, aren't they? They've got, they've got something in common. Yes, he was he was quite prolific. I think Giles Gilbert Scott. He did he did he did lots and lots of um, different things. Very interesting person. <laughs> so, uh, well, how do you go about this then? Because it's quite clear. For example, Fiona Jane or, uh, or our very own Matt Brown uh, may participate in uh, a, a quiz set by you. Uh, they know everything already. So, you know, how do you go to the next level and uh, manage to come up with questions that are going to stump them? <laughs> In my case, I don't think I would dare to try and catch out somebody like Matt or some of the people that are in the Londonist quizzes, for example. They've got absolutely prolific knowledge. I really, really enjoyed the Londonist one, which was had people like London historians in. So I think what I would bring and I would offer to Matt, actually I have actually put this before him before, is to do one of the, the treasure hunts that we do because... Uh, actually going and looking for things where you've got to hunt for the answer with your own eyes gives you an added dimension to this it's not enough to know the answer you've got to actually be there on the spot look around and work something out for yourself uh, just on that, so we'll, we'll be coming back, by the way, to a rather unusual uh, London challenge, which is designed to get people uh, thinking and making algorithms and all of that sort of thing in, in, in just a moment. Um, Fiona Jane, your knowledge of London, though, how do you work that into your performances and perhaps particularly the, uh, the, the London, the capital cabaret? What, where does that information go? How does it surface? Well, partly it comes from the material that I've chosen to sing um, or to present in some way. Um, for example, I mean, it's some weird little quirky thing about uh, uh, Anne Boleyn in, in the Tower of London. I do a song about her wandering around the, the Tower of London holding her head tucked underneath her arm, and I sing a song about that. So it has some sort of bizarre references as well. Um, so it's, it's partly chosen from the material that I think would be entertaining and would actually sort of fit, and, and fit into the crafting of... Of, of the cabaret itself um, some of it's from diaries I have a piece from for example Samuel Pepys's diary obviously about the, the fire of London and then that moves into uh, John Dryden's poem about the fire of London and so on and it also neatly fits into thinking on the theme of fire just for a moment in the show it, it also talks about Noel Coward's writing of London Pride after he had seen a particularly bad blitz 
in in a London railway station. So the the themes kind of move through an association of ideas and then picking up on material that would then be representing that, and that some some of which the audience will know, so that they will feel comfortable in watching something like that. And sometimes it will come out with a bit of a surprise that will keep them on their toes and interested. It's very interesting that you you light on particular figures as well, so it sounds as though it's a very personal history, certainly some yeah. names that we'd recognise there, but very much about people in a particular time rather than sort of the you know, the broader, more academic scope of, uh, of an age, for example. Well, yes, because, I mean, principally it's meant to be a form of entertainment and um, as an actress I would want to actually portray people in it um, and bring those people to life for the audience to, to meet and, and see them in a particular context as well. So yes, I mean, otherwise there's a danger of it becoming rather too dry and rather an academic exercise, which I didn't want to have happen at all. I wanted it to be a piece of entertainment for people. So, so would I be right in thinking that that might that sort of outlook might tie in with? Uh, I know you're interested in women's history, and of course, it's quite easy to spot what uh, particularly rather prominent men on the higher social rungs have been doing, because that is uh, very much tied in with the, the broad strokes of of history. But when one's looking for the the history of women or for, for people with no money or no sort of social status then one has to start looking at, at oral histories or you know forms of history which are really much more recent um so perhaps we could we could bring this around and, and talk about the uh, the victorian era poverty and, and those sort of things and, and um, how that ties in with the news over the last few last few weeks unfortunately one of the things that struck me was uh there were some stories on the Londonist about um, the use of public loos or the loss of them in Westminster and also how some of them have been turned into other uses and I've experienced that actually because there's a cabaret venue just by Aldwych, number one Aldwych in fact um, which is a public loo which is now a cabaret venue and it's called Sell It All um, and it's, it's incredible to go in there, it really is it's an amazing little place um, and where I think this sort of ties in with the poverty aspect is that I often think well if you think back of Victorian times and, and earlier too, where people had jobs as being rat catchers, they would go down the sewers and catch the rats, um, and had a, there was a, there's a lovely story. I think it's one of the stories um, that uh, sketches by Boz might have been based on, where the rat catcher would actually literally get rats in people's homes because they would bite the babies in the cradle. And we're we're talking about people in those days, of course, who lived in terrible poverty, and yet now, even places that were once part of the sewer system now we're turning into really quite expensive homes or coffee shops uh, where are people living now the face of poverty has changed very very considerably and it's becoming so crowded i wonder what people will think in 200 years hence when they when they look at what what we're doing now with any kind of little postage stamp of, of, of place that we can use to house people I, I think you've opened up a, a, on several fronts there as well because, of course, the, uh, the the issue of housing, which never seems to be far from the agenda in London, is uh, resurfacing as we have the spare bedroom... Te- well, they keep dressing it in funny ways, don't they? Is it the bedroom subsidy or something like that? They're yeah, just squishing people into a smaller space. What, what's your um, experience, uh, Cathy, of, of London? How, how long have you been uh, connected with London? How long have you been traipsing around the streets or looking for uh, answers to clothes? My connection with London goes back to childhood and my mum grew up in um, the, the southern suburbs and would would bring me into town a lot, um, traipsing around, as you say, on foot for miles and hours on end. I come in with school trips with her because she's a teacher and, and visit all sorts of places and I've just always been excited by it. And so... When uh, they Londoners published the other day some photographs from the 1970s of tube stations in black and white, that for me was totally evocative. I could remember that feeling of holding my mum's hand and walking around those tube tunnels. The pictures were just exactly as I, as I remember them, um, except... except in my head, they were somewhat grimier, I think, than those fo- particular photographs. And I wonder, because they were taken in 1977, if they were a reflection of um, some sprucing up that might have been done for the Silver mm. Jubilee that year. Mm. Um, and so, well, that, that ties in very nicely with the Olympics as well, doesn't it? And the sort of the uh, the, the cleansing of the city in various ways. You saw all those East End shop fronts which were tarted up overnight. The reason I ask, in fact, the more I think about it, the 70s and now kind of uh, economically not uh, not so dissimilar 
in some ways, you know, and the big event in the middle of it. But, um, but we've got the story here, food poverty in London increasing. Um, and the, the number of food banks in London has risen from six in 2009 to 40 now. Um, 60% of local teachers say they fed hungry pupils from their own pockets. And um, at a sort of a rough estimate, we've got uh, an approximate figure of about 592,000 of London's children living below the poverty line. So, uh, of course, it's a, it's a difficult one to call. Many of the areas where the, the very poorest people live uh, naturally aren't the sort of areas necessarily where one would go uh, looking for some of the things that we're talking about, uh, cabaret museums, uh, that, that sort of stuff. So it's very difficult to get a true feel for it. But I wonder whether you're feeling this, whether you're sensing that this this sounds about right. Are you perceiving that there's uh, an increase in actual poverty? I am often shocked to read, for example, the number of children that are going to schools with, with no breakfast. And, you know, you hear about some schools that are funding breakfasts for children. Uh, I think uh, this comes back again to something that, that Fiona Jane mentioned uh, when we were chatting earlier about the changing nature of diet and poverty. And you you mentioned that many years ago you'd think about somebody who's skinny and malnourished um, in terms of poverty. But today we're talking about a different problem and about bad diet and obesity and how that reflects poverty. Uh, so that it's, it is our responsibility to look at you know what we are feeding people and um, and addressing the burden on the NHS and so forth as well. Um, and just to make a just to, just to throw in a slightly uh, political and very very subjective um, point, you know the, the quicker we start tackling the amount of sugar that um, is out there in people's diet, the better. Fast food clearly doesn't help, uh, but you know people will, will turn to confectionery at the first at the first opportunity. Um, mm, mm. tackling. I think you're right. So we've got we've got sort of tandem sorts of poverty going on. There maybe different approaches. Uh, some people with 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 no food. Uh, some people with absolutely the wrong sort of food. And there's a, clearly a proliferation of uh, the wrong sort of food. Yes, I mean. Um I worked in a primary school for a short time and um, there was a, a, the Christmas party came up. I was appalled to see the amount of food that was wasted, that children would take a single bite of and then be allowed to just discard it. Um, there was piles, I mean piles, it was obscene, the amount of food that I saw just, just thrown away. Uh, and it wasn't good food either, it was dreadful food, a lot of it. Um, I lived in India for a short time. I, I've seen real poverty. I've actually cradled in my arms a baby that was literally skin and bone. It was just a little, you know, like the, you could have broken the bones because they were like they could snap. And yet, a lot of the poverty that we see today, it's it sounds strange to say, but it's almost a poverty that has grown out of an indulgence that we've actually sort of indulged everybody that they can have almost anything they want. You were talking about confection. Children can just grab sweets whenever they want. Nobody seems to sort of you know, think that rationing it might be a good idea, either for their health or even just learning to sort of live without sometimes. Well, they do say that the, uh, the, the, the Second World War generation was actually, uh, and, and still is, uh, amongst the healthiest because they had to deal with the, the basics and make that work. Absolutely, and people used to grow their own food. Um, my, my, my family, in fact, did so. They actually they had chickens and things like that. I'm not saying that this is necessarily what we should all go back to, but there is something in refer, re, returning to a certain amount of simplicity, which I think could probably help everyone, really. Um, it's, not, it's, it's interesting that we live in an age of such prosperity, and yet the kind of poverty that we're seeing is very different. And it's very difficult now to live in simplicity in the way that perhaps my my grandmother once could and I was struck by it when I'd lived in China for some time and I had one single bowl of which is an enamel bowl and in that bowl I would have um, I had two thermos flasks of hot water and because I was a foreigner I was the only one who was allowed to have two thermos flasks others had to have one thermos flask of hot water but I was allowed to because they recognized you know that I might find it more difficult in this enamel bowl we had to wash all our clothes our hair our bodies our everything and we hung our, um, our washing over bamboo poles which um, uh, 
we and the girls' dormitory, we were, we were above the boys and our washing used to drip on theirs and they used to complain about it. It used to be quite funny. And I thought that when I came back to live in the West again, that I would try to live very, very simply. And I found it very difficult to do so because it was very hard. I lived in a place where I couldn't hang out my washing, so I needed a washing machine or something like this. Where, but it was just, it was so much harder to live simply in the West than it was in a country where it was, where it was expected. Yes, as part of the solution, there is a discussion from the London Assembly that schools should provide education to parents and children on how to make budgets for food go further. So there is that idea that that education and uh, sort of rethinking how we go about our day-to-day life might well need to form uh, a part of this. There's a thing here which sounds a a little bit uh, gimmicky to me. Uh, I'm sure the intention behind it is not. The Assembly wants the Mayor, his advisor Rosie Boycott and the London Food Board and the boroughs to make London, and here it comes, a zero-hunger city which in a way seems to miss the point somewhat, doesn't it? It's, about, uh, it's not just about whether we've got stuff to shove in our gobs, it's also about what's going in there and uh, you know, food waste. Uh, but let's talk about housing uh, while we're on the joyous subject of uh, not enough of uh, important things. We have not enough okay. places to live for people. What's the headline news here, Cathy? Uh, so there's a lot in the media and on social media at the moment about... Uh, the phenomenon known as bedroom tax and so the fact is that um, occupancy rules are coming in to social housing and uh, obviously going to have an impact on London because people are going to have to are going to be losing benefits uh, where they have extra accommodation available that is not being used and this is obviously going to have a wide impact over a large um, number of people in a number of different ways. So the, the idea here is that you've, if you've got a spare room, I mean people will be familiar with this of course, if, if there's a, a spare room going on in the place then everybody's supposed to compress and downsize uh, to free up housing stock. Uh, some of the figures here though seem really remarkable and, and Lewisham seems to feature large in this. The Cambridge Centre for Housing and Planning Research looked at Lewisham and the, the wider Lewisham borough and it found that a four-year waiting list existed for households wanting to move from a two-bedroom to a one-bedroom flat and get this over 6,500 people borough-wide were on the waiting list for a one-bedroom flat and uh, there just weren't any uh, literally none at the time of the study over 16,000 households across London were on the social housing waiting list and 42% of those wanted just one bedroom the starting point of this argument um, has to be there, there just aren't enough properties that are suitable and cheap enough how do we move beyond that because we've got to I don't know how anyone can think it's practicable for goodness knows how many thousands of people to suddenly uproot and move somewhere just because all of a sudden they're going to be taxed on a room they've got in their house which they may not have had initially you know perhaps children live there who have now grown up and moved away perhaps dad lived there and he died what are you supposed to do suddenly find yourself taxed because your father just died i mean this is bizarre you can't just suddenly get up and go just like that just because somebody's clamped a tax on you it seems to me to be most most punitive and 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 quite unnecessary and unrealistic form of, of, of taxation that I can even begin to think of. Also, I mean, if you want to buy a property, and I know this from experience, but if you want to buy a property um, for rental purposes or something like that, it is easier to buy a one-bedroom property to use it as rent, than it, um, as rental income, than it is to buy two properties. Why? Because they're easier to rent out. So therefore, uh, proportionally, they're in fact more expensive. Again, the face of poverty is not what people think it is. Yes, and of course there's the, the issues of uh, whether you've got any money in your pocket. I mean, you may well have a property uh, by whatever means. Uh, that's keeping a roof over your head but if you've got to move house well that costs money we all know uh, that you, you've got to sort of re-establish yourself somewhere uh, if you've got no cash you can't do that it's you can't it's no, it's no good somebody telling you you've got to because you can't well, what's the what's the right way forward here though how, how do you, how do we develop out of this situation clearly changes have to be made i'm not convinced at all that this is anything more than a sticking plaster myself a, a bit of firefighting I, I should say and once the uh, if there is a beneficial effect on housing stock to come from this uh, well i don't think the, the problem is going to do anything other than resurface in a few years time 
What then? What's being put in place? What should be put in place? I think that um, we need to look at uh, architectural trends. Um, I think that the 60s version of, you know, piling people one on top of the other and getting ever taller is not going to suit London very well at all. And it's just, it's too, it's the, the, the land masses won't take it that way. Um, but there are very interesting designs that have come out in, in more recent years whereby people work around hubs and communities where small-scale um, uh, flats very well designed which have got you know, soundproofing of a certain kind um, which have got more practical um, furnishings and fittings that would work and also bring people around a central courtyard so that there is still a community because if you uproot people because they've got an extra bedroom where are they then going to get their childcare help from their, from their local community or from their mother or wherever if you've suddenly just dispersed them everywhere and now you have literally um, poverty being moved around as opposed to poverty being solved. At the same time we're seeing um, the the stock of commercial properties just you know we've got an abundance of, of new buildings going up around the city particularly the financial district as we know and some of which as we know again have been suspended because there aren't enough uh, businesses to, to take on those properties so we seem to have a surplus of space for business purposes and yet we've got this shortage of affordable housing it's not too ridiculous to look at you know how you could actually potentially build residential um affordable residential uh properties into even some of these these skyscrapers and new developments uh, i know they were talking about you know things that you could do around canary wharf and so forth to make them to make them more habitable habitable uh, but also um as regards what fiona jane has just said uh this idea that we can adapt we, or we could adapt to living in smaller spaces and we've been looking at people have been looking at Japanese models haven't they for capsule living so we're used to an Englishman's home is his, is his castle and we're, we're used to space we like the idea of having space but we can live more simply and we can live in smaller spaces provided as you say that there are those there is that community to support that style of living as long as you can go outside of your front door and you know that, that, that your living space extends beyond your front door because there's a square, there's a courtyard, there's a community, there are shared buildings, that's perhaps a, a style of living that we, we need to, to go back to. So, so building, clever building and uh, presumably making sure that it doesn't get snapped up by the, the private sector so it shoots out of uh, people's economic reach. And I, I wondered about, I mean, I'm not a big fan of this uh, HS2 project. It seems a bit silly to me. I don't <laughs> think many people need to get to Birmingham half an hour faster. I could be completely right. I haven't, I haven't spoken to anybody who likes it. What about if, if instead you put a, a, an HS2 out into the middle of the countryside and had a, started a new town up there or something like that, two stops, and it get into the centre of London nice and quickly? Uh, some sort of key worker thing. Oh, I suppose that would go private sector very quickly, wouldn't it? Sounds, sounds too idyllic. For haven't we? There have been people shipped in from from far and wide, Newcastle and places where they can, and Doncaster. So it's shipping people in to do, do essential essential jobs that live a long way away. I don't know if I'd go as far as Doncaster. That's a hell of a commute. Well. It is a few hours, but I guess for a lot of people who do commute into London, it can take a few hours to get in anyway from 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 a lot closer. But you're 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 kind of you're harking back to some of the things that you can learn about in the in the Museum of Transport in Covent Garden, where they 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 tell you about how those satellite towns started to be built up, um, you know, the, the garden suburbs and so forth, back in the early part of the 20th century, um, and. It was much a similar situation, you know. So I've had a hundred-year-old idea. <laughs> That's fantastic. I'm glad to be on the have my finger on the pulse of all this stuff. Um, we should move along. We've got uh, a few other stories to talk about that are slightly less de- depressing. We've got tube stories, but there's a one-stop game that you mentioned, uh, a one-stop tube puzzle. I, w- I was fascinated by this story uh, in the Londonist. So um, a few weeks ago, uh, a, pu- a puzzle was posted, uh, a challenge to people to come up with could they work their way around the tube map of London travelling on every single line once and only travelling one stop in any direction on that line now apparently there was one single solution to it but uh, what was intriguing was that once the solution had been had been had been posted other people then 
pop their heads up. These And these are the people who are the real nerds. This is what I love about this kind of puzzle. You get the nerds coming out of the woodwork. And somebody had uh, programmed, made a, uh, into their computer, an algorithm which showed that if you allowed, if you said that Tower Hill and Tower Gateway were the same station, and if you said that Bank and Monument were the same station, you could actually get nine different permutations for this. What Londoners did was take this one step further and propose that on Easter Monday there should be a one-stop puzzle walk. And I understand that a group of people did get together on Easter Monday and go and walk the nine and a half miles that was this critical path, if you like, across the London tube map. Uh, I find this kind of thing just um, intriguing. People are people are very very clever. Yes, a, a very worthy endeavour, I've noted. I, I wouldn't be surprised if pubs were involved along the way there, as well as they tend to be. By the way, you may not know that uh, Londonist does lots of sort of pub walks and walks around tube lines and all sorts of... There's usually a jar or two involved, so do keep an eye out on Londonist. You can sign up, incidentally, for a daily bulletin of Londonist stories, if you so choose, and you'll get a, a round-up of the, the news, a few ideas of cultural things to do, some quirky stories as well. You can get that in your inbox every day. Just take a look on Londonist.com and sign up for that. Londonist Out Loud is sponsored by Audible. To claim your free audiobook from a range of 60,000 titles, try the Audible service on a 30-day free trial. Audiobooks can be saved as MP3s and played on your compatible phone, tablet or desktop or burnt to CD, and they're yours to keep. For your free audiobook, go to www.audible.co.uk forward slash Londonist and click through. Well, I'm here with James Albrecht. He is the Associate Artistic Director of the St. James Studio. And we are on stage down here. And we're in the, uh, the, the cellar. And looking up, I have to say, as a performer, this is quite an unusual... This is not what I thought I'd be seeing. I'm looking up, and rather than seeing rows of seats stretching away, there's a rather comfortable-looking gallery with a glass front and some uh, cosy armchairs there so that they can watch what's going on. Um, what sort of performances go on down here, James? Well, it, it is a, a theatre space, and as such, it's proving to be a very versatile space. So I have to confess, we do rather a lot of different things, um, but we try and be at least fairly specific about on what day you might expect to see something. But in a nutshell, and let's go from May onwards, because it's changing from then, uh, every Wednesday in May will be jazz. Um, every Thursday is comedy. Every Friday is music that isn't quite jazz, isn't quite cabaret, kind of crossovery type nights. And every weekend is cabaret. And then dotted about, we have the odd week of doing small-scale theatre and one-man shows and that sort of thing. And what's brought about this change? Is this uh, sort of a new broom, or what's brought that about? From May, well, really only one thing, which is that um, jazz... I mean, this is a beautiful, beautiful room for jazz. It's perfect for jazz. Everyone who comes into it thinks it's a little slice of Manhattan. Um, And it it, it is, but it's proving to be... um, At the moment, we do jazz on a Friday, and it's not the best night for, A, jazz in general, B, the kind of jazz we're doing, um, particularly in this area, because I think a lot of our potential jazz audience are local residents um, but we're in quite an affluent area and many of those uh, residents disappeared to the country on the weekend so at the moment what we're getting is a, a for our jazz nights are largely an audience of jazz enthusiasts who really know and love jazz as opposed to the more casual jazz listener which i think uh, is an area that we an audience we need to tap into and wednesdays are likely to be a better night for that well, people will know uh, what they're getting and when they're getting it. That sounds uh, like a, a recipe for success, for sure. I'd love to talk about the area, actually, because one of the most obvious things as you come from Victoria Station to arrive here is the sheer amount of, of works that are going on, construction and road rerouting and all that kind of thing. Mm. Why all the upheaval in the area? I, I think it's about £6 billion that's being spent on, on improving the area, I suppose, in a similar way to the way that uh, Paddington was improved over a 10-year period. And, you know, it certainly could use it. Uh, from from before so a lot of investment is going into the area and as a result I have to say there are a lot of new businesses that are establishing themselves here and some new residential residential areas that are popping up um, and the, 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 the whole tube side of things is being improved and then the new exits etc I mean one of the things that Victoria has been lacking in uh, really I think it's fair to say is 
entertainment um, you know, unless at the moment you want to go and see Billy Elliot or, or Wicked um, there really is almost nothing at all in the area for evening entertainment so hopefully on that, on that score as well as part of I suppose this, this larger local development we are adding something of, of real value to the area and the emphasis here does appear to be on the social side of things as well. There's a beautiful uh, sort of a cafe bar going on upstairs with the most outrageous staircase I think I've ever seen. Well, that staircase, yes. I mean, when, as you possibly know, this building is on the site of what was once the Westminster Theatre, um, which burnt down in 2002. And uh, when a property developer went to Westminster Council in 2006 to build 35 luxury flats, which indeed are above the rest of this building, um, Westminster Council said that, uh, A, he must reinstate the theatre that was on the site and B, there must be a piece of public art uh, and that staircase is deemed to be um, a, a, a functional piece of public art. It's quite impressive. I think it's 27 tonnes of marble from Italy, um, from Carrera, hence why the restaurant has been renamed the Carrera Restaurant um, and uh, yes I, I, I th- again you know, you, uh, this is a theatre complex, at least that's how it's built and you want it to be a, a, a busy hive of activity from 10 o'clock in the morning till midnight really with people coming in from the local area to eat at lunch, uh, lunchtime and use the bar and, and, and what have you so that's certainly the, the hope Now I'm curious, particularly the, uh, the, the decor here, it, it, it takes uh, a bold institution to uh, use some of this I, I was imagining if you only had like one or two of these pictures, uh, it wouldn't look so great, as it is, these black and white 50s prints, really impressive and uh, you, Manhattan's a pretty good description actually, we've got a baby grand um, just over here, there's a dark uh, sort of wood effect panelling and a low bar with low lights um, to what extent have you been involved in designing how the place looks or uh, to what extent are you responsible for the performers? Um, I can't take much credit for the way the place looks. Uh, certainly the structure of the building itself had been done and dusted by the time we as the operating uh, company were on board and certainly by the time David Gilmore, who's the artistic director, and myself were hired. Um, is, that, is that Pink Floyd, uh, Gilmore? You'd like to think so, but it's not. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> or would he like to think so? <laughs> An easy mistake to make. Uh, he's, uh, he's just a fantastic director. He's, he's, he's run a couple of buildings and directed many fantastic shows, but I suppose the best known of which is Greece, which was on for 20 years until this very year um and uh but uh, so th- th- that was all kind of done i mean we've had tiny little inputs here and there about just some of the detail in in, in the building in, in the theaters um so and the pictures actually all belong to the ceo of the operation and they are um I believe, relatively unseen and rare images of obviously very well-known people. I could sort of imagine that this might be perceived to be a dream job, really. Uh, Going out looking for acts that you enjoy and uh, that you think other people will enjoy and and sharing them. It is. uh, uh, That side of it is. And also the the opportunity to do that from from the ground up. I mean, it's really a once-in-a-lifetime thing, or once-in-a-generational thing anyway, that a brand-new theatre of this sort of size and scale opens up in central London. So to have been here from the word go, um, whilst that does present certain challenges, is nonetheless incredibly exciting. And particularly so because we're in the fortunate position of being in a room right now which tends to sort of elicit gasps really from from hunters and and artists when they come into it so in that sense my job is made relatively easy because um people really want to perform here um and when they do they walk out you know having had a pretty amazing experience so what about those challenges then if we in your day-to-day work what what gives you a headache well i mean it goes without saying that you know a lot of money was spent on the building and a lot of effort has been put into putting artists into the building uh, and it's not as easy as um clicking your fingers and just knowing that the audience are going to rock up no matter how great what you put on is it's it's it is a there is a journey to go on there where you know you have to uh, accept that it takes time for the word to get out um as, and, and it, it doesn't happen as fast as you'd like um and notwithstanding the fact that we didn't have a half a million pound marketing budget to sort of help um so the challenges really are to hold your um nerve actually and know that or believe at least that what you're putting on is of sufficient uh interest and quality that the audiences do come and i mean i have to say the studio has done really very well we've had you know some runs of several weeks where most of the shows have sold extremely well or sold out um but it's by no means uh, easy and you can't in any way just assume that's going to happen and then sometimes it gets quiet for reasons that remain slightly obscure and you know the main house whilst critically speaking what's been on in there has been 
fantastically well received and you know even in our first season we got an Olivier Award nomination um, you know, it's a hard thing to fill 312 seats a night it's a work in progress so it's really that's that's the main challenge it's just you know you you know you just want the whole world to know about you now um and, and, and of course it's it's a question of building up a name and a, exactly. a reputation and getting people used to the pattern that you you're talking about exactly exactly who have you seen performing in london let's say in the last year who, who has really impressed you I suppose at the moment I really only go and see shows uh, or events that uh, that I have a chance of booking here and therefore actually are quite limited. I, although there are one or two exceptions that I can't deny that I did enjoy the Book of Mormon enormously. <laughs> but we're not going to get the Book of Mormon here under <laughs> any circumstances. Uh, of course, Fiona Jane I saw uh, uh, not long ago at the Crazy Cox and uh, that was a, a fabulous uh, show all about London and uh, a very suitable show for this venue. Um, but amongst others, I mean, on the jazz side, I, I'm now trying to get out more. Part of my talk about the challenges earlier because we're new and because we do different things here every night and because I'm building the relationships with both artists and promoters and punters I'm, I'm quite often stuck here and cutting the umbilical cord enough to be able to get out and see things is now the job at hand which I've been doing for about a month and a half uh, but Jason Rebello at the at the uh, um, at Ronnie Scott's was a, was a fantastic night. I'd love to see him here. And uh, funnily enough, uh, well, Dusty Limits, um, a cabaret performer, um, I saw and we now have had here just this past weekend, and fantastically brilliant, slightly avant-garde and risque uh, cabaret night that, that uh, you know really was was just brilliant on on, on all fronts. We were of course uh, approaching the weekend. Who's performing here this weekend? Well, actually, tomorrow, comedy night, Robert Newman, absolutely brilliant uh, comedian, uh, political bent, and uh, um, really, uh, I'm very excited about that night, selling well as well, so that's good. Um, and Frank Griffiths is the jazz uh, band on Friday. Um, again, he's been here before, actually, he's done a review of the space before, and, uh, and that will be a very classy night. Uh, so on Saturday, we've got uh, a cabaret uh, performer called Sophie Walsh-Harrington who's doing Damsel in Shining Armour and uh, a following show, or sort of double bill hot, uh, which uh, she's just... Uh, it's, a, it's a really brilliant... It's a cross almost between theatre and cabaret. And uh, the premise, if I were to describe it, sounds dodgy, but it's about... She uses the songs of Celine Dion to tell the story of her troubled uh, love life, basically, um, but done with huge wit, a fantastic voice... And and uh, a really kind of neatly uh, economic staging, let's say, that's just inventive at all times. Well, that sounds highly questionable, but I'm sure <laughs> a wonderful finished we product. All agree. We all agree that uh, just to mention Celine Dion as being the premise for any show leaves one in some doubt. But Andy, one of your favourites. That and Dusty Limits have been my two favourites. There you are. So. <laughs> uh, listener, if you didn't catch that, one of Andy's favourites is Dusty Limits. You heard it here first. Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what, what is the website for this venue? uk, and that's ST James Theatre. Londonist Out Loud is available free as a stream at londonist.com or a weekly download via iTunes. Hit us up on Facebook at Londonist Out Loud, tweet at Londonist Sound, and check out images of our guests via the Londonist Out Loud stream on Instagram. There's a pub story going on in Nunhead, which Fiona Jane caught your eye, I think. And this is an example of community coming together. Yeah, the pub in Nunhead, the Ivy House pub, was going to close. And the local people just did not want this to happen. So they organised together and got together and they ended up buying it. And it's going to become London's first cooperative pub. Part of the community harbour. We were talking about communities just a moment ago, weren't we? Um, and they're going to invite people to invest in it, even as little as £200. And they're having a public meeting on it on Sunday the 14th of April, which sounds very interesting. And I'd be very interested to see just how, how well this works. I, I think it could be tremendous. I mean, already it will have brought that community together before it's even opened. So I think this is, this is going to be great news. And it just goes to show that although, yes, we as English, uh, English people do like 
like to have our, our home as our castle. We are also very sociable people and we need each other. No man is an island and we don't want to lose that sense of community. Well, I, I, I do agree with you. I think that uh, the British people in particular need to have a project to bring them together. They, they need to have an excuse to talk to each other. And so what better than community projects of this sort? There, of course, are lots of uh, organic food operations going on around town, clothes redistribution, all sorts of things like that. So uh, sort of getting out and getting your hands dirty and figuring out how to, to make these community things work seems like a pretty good way to spend time. A great link, of course, would be to the story of the shop down in Clapham Junction. Now, this was, two, I can't believe, two years ago, almost, the fancy dress and party superstore shop down in Clapham Junction, owned by uh, Duncan Mundell, was uh, set on fire in a spectacular way, and it's, it's goods, masks and so forth, used by rioters who were going on to uh, wreak havoc in the area. But there's good news, it would seem. Cathy? Yes, one of the mo- as you say, one of the things about Londoners coming together that's really, um, you know, captured everybody's imagination in the past few years was the response to the riot. So, you know, there was the, the clean-up movement that went on, people grabbing their mops and, you know, being pictured all, you know, sh- shaking their mops in the air and brooms. Uh, it was fantastic. And shortly after that incident, I was in need of some fancy dress items. Um <laughs> I seem to recall in connection with pirates at the time and I went along to Clapham because uh, I'd heard that the store was reopening um, in it was being hosted in, in the local department store and it was up there on the second floor of the department store and sure enough they that is that is some fancy dress emporium they've got loads of stuff it's great fun everything you can imagine for parties and dressing up and generally d- adopting a an alter ego and 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 having fun. You'll have detected <laughs> listener that Kathy Brown knows her fancy dress shops. <laughs> oh, yeah, I like that one very much indeed. And so it's really good news to see now that they have opened up their shop again. Party Superstore shop is open again. And that's what, just wonderful news. It is, yes. And I know as well that the uh, the Reeves family of Reeves Corner have also re-established themselves. So that's uh, it's, it's really quite a relief. And I know that there was a, a great community support for the, the, the Reeves family as well. So it looks as though we have managed to come through all of that uh, horrible stuff. Of course, it's, you know, can't uh, gloss over the fact that people died in that uh, awful thing. And um, naturally, as, as these success stories appear, I know our thoughts are with those people who weren't able to put things uh, back together after all of that. We've, we're also uh, in the, uh, the aftermath, uh, a much more pleasant aftermath of the Olympics, and the site is being transformed very slowly and gradually into what, uh, well, um, I'm not quite sure I've got a clear picture in my mind. I know there's a bit of housing going on. I think West Ham is going to be installed as the chief tenant or the primary tenant at the uh, the, the stadium itself. But what's going on at the Arsenal Middle Tower, I hear you ask? Well, we've, we've had a bit of a, a look at this and indeed uh, sent one of our team over to uh, go up the... You've got to be careful how you say it. You can soundbite yourself really badly here to go up the Arsenal Middle Tower. Um, <laughs> I noticed, by the way, that the radio ads for going up there always drop a, an adjective in between uh, go up the and then the name of the structure. Anyway, it sounds a little bit underwhelming, in all honesty. From what I understand, the, the tours offering views of the Olympic Park, essentially you, you turn up at the Olympic Park, get on a bus, go to the tower. I don't know why you need a bus to go across the site to the tower. Well, aren't we supposed to be doing something about obesity and <laughs> all that? You need a bus to walk these few yards. Um, up you go, and uh, you have a look from the top of this tower, and then back on the bus... And back again, and apparently there's uh, you can use a surveyor's telescope to find the mare hidden in a map of the park. This sounds very seventies in conception. Does this really doesn't sound like a great day out to me? I don't know. What, what do you think, Kathy? I think maybe the mare is dangling from a from a zip wire in, when you find him on the map. I guess what I like about this is uh, actually you, one of the interesting things in London is is views, and if you go to the top of Primrose Hill, you can spot the orbit in the distance so i also like the idea that you could go up the orbit and perhaps you wouldn't be so interested in 
the layout of the Olympic Park beneath you, although I'm, I'm sure it's, you know, that is fascinating, but that you might be able to see more of the changing skyline of London in the distance with, uh, with all the shapes that there are, which is something that fascinates me. Uh, just in case you're wondering, listener, we are, as I mentioned, we're in a, a live uh, theatre studio setting, and of course they're, they're getting rigged up for the next performance. Does this Fiona Jane appeal to you in any respect? I've never been one for Helder Skelters. I mean, I find that the structure of looking looking at that building um, interesting. I do like looking at it. It looks like a lot of fun. But um, personally, I've always been rather scared of those kind of things, the, the, the speeds and the Helder Skelters and things like that. Oh, no, it's not my kind of thing, I'm afraid. No. I'm, I'm not sure you're actually whizzing down it, though. Am I wrong? No, I, I don't think that's part of it. I mean, they, they certainly they have kept it quiet if it is. <laughs> but on that very subject, there was an incident regarding a Helder Skelter the other day on the 1st of April. One particular public had posted a picture of the shard with saying that it was going to be adapted to be a super space age helter-skelter ride uh, with ride going down down the outside i loved the way that this was actually deconstructed by by uh, the guys over at the londonist um, and they pointed out that they had originally had the idea of turning london into a circus or a playground back in 2006 seven years previously almost they uh, if you click on the link on the article you can see there um 2006 matt londonist and they've drawn pictures of london where they've put the um they've put the helter skelter in uh, the artist impressions because of course that the building that is currently known as a helter skelter uh, was just an artist impression at the time but they've got circus uh, big tops and they've turned different things into rides and um also very presciently mentioned that there may be a cable car coming in the future to london and here we are now you see it's official all good ideas start on <laughs> londonist.com there's a set of books out do you want to who wants to do the set of books i'll do the set of books there is a set of books out you may have detected that from my rambling introduction there uh penguin has published a it's a rather attractive collection of short essays and stories and it's of course to mark the london underground's 150th anniversary year each one is colored and themed to reflect one of the 12 tube lines and of course that includes uh, the east london line which apparently is still game even though it's now uh, been subsumed into the overground network it's quite an interesting collection not perhaps what you'd be expecting although it is difficult to know what to expect the back covers reveal nothing about the contents other than uh, well it, it gives a bit of a biog of the the author eye color first visit to london nothing really of any relevance but the contents varies from book to book there's short stories there's uh, autobiography biographical depiction of the author's formative years in Chelsea. There's another volume that's by Camilla Batman Gellish and Kids Company and uh, is really an appallingly harrowing read all about the experience of children who've been abused and who've suffered in London. In contrast, the editors of Fantastic Man magazine have for their volume put together a tribute to men who wear their shirts fully buttoned up. So as you, uh, you, you can see, this is a real uh, melange of ideas. Uh, well worth a look. Individually priced at four ninety nine, or a box set of 12 for 60 quid if you go to your friendly local independent bookstore let's start weaving towards a a close of course we've got a quiz lurking around the corner for you which you don't look happy about (laughs) trepidatious i think is the word that comes to mind because your reputation we often have historians on the show and it's a history quiz but your your reputation really is on the line here this is a career (laughs) make or break moment for you kathy no, so I would rather be in the question-setting seat, <laughs> but I'll give, but I'll give it my best shot. Well, should we launch in? Okay. The the idea here is there's five questions. Is it is it a competition? Do we win a prize? <laughs> do we get buttons? <laughs> buttons we can do. Um, so we've got five questions, and it's, uh, it's it's this week in history. So here's the first one, and uh, it's first to uh, to answer the question correctly, of course. Monday the 1st of April, 1965. What administrative area is formed, amalgamating and consuming parts of central London and the home counties? Greater London Authority? It is Greater London. Yes, one to Cathy. Good start. A Tuesday the 2nd of April, 1962. The first what is opened on York Road, opposite Waterloo Station? There'll be a few stray bullets on this one, I think, before we get close to the target. There's a pained look on Fiona Jane Weston's uh, face at the moment. I think she's thinking of all the other places she could be right now. (laughs) (laughs) 
Kathy Brayton, a look of horror. Is that pedestrian crossing? Oh, you're very, very close. What kind of uh, pedestrian crossing? A zebra crossing. You're in the right zone, but wrong Pleasure animal. Beacons. Pelican. No, nearly. <gasps> no idea, honestly. Pelican. It's it's a panda crossing. Is it? It is, yes. It was the first panda crossing. Do, what do we know about panda crossings? Nothing at all. Absolutely nothing at all. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we've got one for Kathy, and uh, that's where we're at. Wednesday, the 3rd of April, 1954. Oxford University wins the boat race. How many boat races had there been at that point? So which number boat race was that in 1954? Ten? Not ten. I'll bid you 35. You're still a good way off both of One more guess each, closest one gets it. 78. 100. Spot on 100. Yes, very good. So one all, Thursday the 4th of April, 1896. The new premises for which gallery open their doors for the first time? What was that again? Yes, 1896. A gallery opens up. Which one? National Portrait Gallery. In one. Yes. You sounded like you were piecing that together as well. Yeah, very good. <laughs> so, a draw possible, Fiona Jane. Uh, Friday, the 5th of April, 1821, the newly rebuilt St. Paul's Church, a.k.a. the Church of Sea Captains, is consecrated. But where is the Church of Sea Captains? Belgravia. It is not in Belgravia. I think of how London uh, would, would have worked at that point. That'll probably take you in the right sort of direction. It'll be somewhere over towards Greenwich Way. Perhaps? Yeah, that's the right sort of thinking, yeah. Docklands. D- uh, Docklands, yes. Well, let's let's pin it down. West India Key. Not West India Key. Limehouse? Very, very close. Yeah. Poplar. Not Poplar. Go on, you've nearly got it. Wapping. No. no. East India. No. <laughs> Canary Wharf? No. Drifting away again. No. Shadwell. It is Shadwell. Yes. Is that the one with the spire you can see from the from the DLR? Let's say it is. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to say it is. I haven't written my trail around there yet. And you what? I haven't written my Shadwell and Whooping trail yet, but it's going to be a good one. Well, the Church of Sea Captain should definitely feature. Mm-hmm. Fiona Jane Weston, you didn't do very well there. No, you got I didn't. one out of a possible five. Uh, we ha- we have to say Kathy Brown, a uh, fantastic, uh, resounding. <laughs> You put me to shame. You put me to shame, Gathy. I'm, I'm, I'm not competitive at all. <laughs> We're all going to know a lot more about pounder crossings by the end of the day, I suspect. Well done. OK, well, we, look, we've, we've got to uh, think about wrapping up, I'm afraid, but uh, we should say a word or two about sort of performances, websites, trails, all of that jazz. Um, as our Victor, Gathy Brown, would you like to go first? Thank you very much. Yes, um, so I would like to... Um, ask people to take a look at londonstreetgames.com and uh, we've got a number of games that we've devised that you can play at weekends and one coming up which is on weekdays so if now that the days are getting longer and spring is finally on its way uh, you may want to get together with some friends after work and have a take part in a manhunt so we're asking people to get together in search parties uh, register their mobile number and come and look for alan Alan's gone missing in London and that's what we're asking you to do is to join us to come and search for Alan. He's got beer tokens. <laughs> right. Okay. <laughs> I be, a day in the life of your career must be a curious thing. I can't quite imagine what that would look like. Tony Jane Weston, uh, what's happening and when? Well, actually, I'm thinking, of, I'm thinking ahead because next year is um, the centenary of the First World War. And I'm thinking about developing a show looking at the role that women have played in warfare in general, not just for the First World War, and thinking of collecting material, both spoken and song, and poetry and prose, um, to, do, to, to explore just what, what, what role women have played in warfare um, up, to, up until now, and certainly up until the, the, um, the Second World War, including staying at home waiting, but also um, people like uh, Florence Nightingale, mm. the recruiting sergeants, um, the women were recruiting sergeants in the First World War, songs that were written over the Vietnam War, uh, and just in general having, uh, just thinking about those themes and seeing what might come out of that in a creative sense. 
I know in the early days of the First World War, uh, and, and it was, I think, women who were charged with uh, handing out white feathers to men who seemed to be of uh, fighting age and fitness who were uh, visible in London and not fighting, and they, they would be presented with a, a white feather representing cowardice in, in public and shamed in that way. Yes, um, certainly women were, the, the whole use of women by the army was to shame men into joining up. Their, their manhood would be called into question, um, even by the very songs and the material that they were used to, to bring people up, to trick people really into joining up was partly to do with that. And of course, one important role in London of women during wartime was building bridges because Waterloo Bridge was built by women in the Second World War. It's known as the Ladies' Bridge. Is that right? Yes. Well, I never knew that. I knew that prostitutes used to hang out on there. I knew that. I didn't realise <laughs> it was actually built by... Actually, yes, it was. It, I, I uh, by ladies, for ladies. Yes, indeed. In fact, one of the um, uh, expressions a friend of my mother used to have, she said, here we are standing around like two Vivian Lees on Waterloo Bridge. And if you've ever seen the film Waterloo Bridge, Vivian Lee played a prostitute who, who stood on, on the bridge. Um, yes. <laughs> on that note... Uh, <laughs> where, where can people find out uh, more and sort of keep in touch with you as that uh, goes into development? Is there a, a, a website or a Facebook? How, how do you do that sort of thing yes um, I have my own fa- um, Facebook page Fiona Jane Weston but I also have a website www.fionajaneweston.com and uh, last but not least the website for uh, Finding Alan and various other pursuits yeah and all of those games yeah um, please come to londonstreetgames.com and yes we also have a Facebook page which is London Street Games so um, be very glad to see you there well, OK, that's us for, uh, for, for this week, I think, from the studio space uh, at the St James's studio here in Victoria. Thanks for, for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. And that's all for this week. My thanks for this week to my guests, Fiona Jane Weston, James Albrecht and Kathy Brown. Thanks too to Bernie Barkley and Dave Haste. Theme and incidental music was by Jack Hurd and Rory Anderson. I'm N. Quentin Wolfe. barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. 
Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.